Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizen Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the CBC. Thanks for joining us here today. We're excited about today's episode. If you've missed any of those we've done lately or in 2018 or 2017, we've had a lot of great guests, a lot of great episodes on a really wide variety of policy matters and a little bit of politics and some get-to-know-you episodes with some great guests and uh, one of our recent guests was the new deputy mayor Phil Thompson. Check that episode out if you didn't catch it um, and a variety of others. You can find them at the Gotham Gazette website, at the CBC website, or any of your favorite podcast platforms. If you have feedback for us, you can send us a note on Twitter. I'm at TweetBenMax. Maria's at Maria Doulis. You can find our organizations as well, of course. So for today, we're very happy to be joined by New York City Comptroller Scott Stringer. Thanks for being here. Great to be here. And uh, before we get into the conversation with the Comptroller, Maria will get us ready with our data point. This week's data point is $225 million. The amount added to budget reserves and the Retiree Health Benefits Trust Fund when the budget was adopted last week. How should you consider that amount? Well, in contrast, the city added more than $2 billion in spending. The $225 million brings total annual budget reserves to $1.375 billion and the balance of the retiree trust fund to $4.3 billion. While that trust fund is supposed to be for the city's $88 billion unfunded liability for retiree health benefits, the city has short-sightedly used it to balance the budget in hard times. Nevertheless, are these reserves enough? Well, it depends on who you, who you ask. And today, we'll be asking the city controller, who's here to give us his answer and talk about this and many other topics. Welcome. Well, it's great to be uh, on the podcast that brings uh, energy to wonk. So yes, I like that. I, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> I feel right at home here. Number one policy podcast for nerds. There no question. <laughs> no question. Um, thank you for joining us. So we have a new uh, city budget. Generally speaking, where do you feel like the the budget lands how do you see it um you know what's your sort of general take right now is we are a week from that budget a week or so from that budget taking effect in the new fiscal year so look budgets are about what's the priorities of the mayor and the city council and initiatives that are put forth reflect a lot of public hearings a lot of discussion back and forth and basically a budget's trying to meet the needs of a community called new york city my job as controller is to weigh in and scrutinize that budget, first and foremost, to make sure it's balanced so that I can go to the, the financial control board with the mayor to speak about our financial plan, which is so critical, and I will do that in the next couple of weeks. Uh, my view of the budget was a lot of initiatives that I thought were important were adopted, uh, certainly $500 million for affordable senior housing, I think is critical when we have a discussion of NYCHA and affordability in the city. I was a longtime supporter of fair fares. I think that will go a long way to giving people an opportunity to look for work, to get to school, to get to the doctor, and provide real relief for the people who are struggling in the city. I do think that there's been a lost opportunity as it relates to putting more money aside for a rainy day. And we have now a record budget of $89 billion. And basically, the notion that we were only going to put away $225 million is a paltry sum. And I think we are going down a road that could cost us or hurt us in the long run. And I'm happy to discuss that today. Mm -hmm. 
So, I mean, you know, we have called this out very squarely to say that over the course of the year, the city added more than $2 billion in new needs spending to the 2019 budget. But then, you know, you counter that with only $225 million to the reserves. Um, but the question you always get is, well, how do you know if it's enough, right? I think we have said our position is that, well, as long as there's an economic expansion, you continually build these reserves aggressively. And we say, you know, the balance is just not there, that agencies need to be spending more and they need to be savings more generally in the city. I think your office has actually laid out a metric for that. So is the city meeting that metric um, or are they still far from it? So, so the real question is, why, why do we care about budget reserves? Well, mm-hmm. the reason we do is because when a calamity happens or a crisis unforeseen happens that requires a huge expenditure of money, the people who usually get hurt are the most vulnerable in the city, seniors, children, the people who are already barely making it. When people have to recalculate the budget because of unforeseen circumstances, the least powerful in the city are the most vulnerable. Uh, we saw a depletion of our savings during 9-11, H- Hurricane Sandy. Unfortunately, just when the city is doing well, something happens, which is why we need to put away money. Uh, I think that we should have, uh, at the high end, 18% of savings relative to the budget expenditure. We, at least bare minimum, should have a 12% saving rate. Uh, Maria and Ben, we're now at 106 million dollars. And what I've said to the city council and the mayor is, okay, you have a four-year financial plan and you spend money very well. You now need a four-year savings plan. I'm not suggesting that we make up the $2 billion in one fiscal year, but you do have to tell New Yorkers what's the plan to get us up to that minimum 12% level and ideally at 18%. So we have called on this for many years. Uh, The question is, how do we get there? Well, let's go scrub the agencies for efficiencies. That's something that hasn't happened in four years. Let's go agency by agency. Say to commissioners, look, there's new technology. You haven't looked at how to save money in an agency in four years. Uh, Previous mayors used to scrub those budgets and say, hey, hold on with those expenses. That's one way to do it. The city, uh, the mayor has refused to do that. I disagree with him. Get in there get those savings, put it aside for that rainy day. The second thing we have to do is start to have real discussion about the money that we're actually spending. When four years ago, to deal with the homeless crisis, we spent $1.2 billion a year. The spending now is approaching $3 billion. 63,000 people are gonna sleep in a homeless shelter. 23,000 are children. What are we getting for that $1.5 billion? I would argue we're getting nothing because we're not spending the time holding hearings, debating how do we solve this homeless crisis. And I think we have to look at changing policy. I think we have to look at making sure every dollar counts, because if we continue to house people in commercial hotels, that costs $100 million. If we continue to stuff people into uh, these terrible conditioned homeless shelters, that is, that's the core of what we believe in. And that has to change, and yes, budgets are priorities, but you gotta be smart about expenditure and, and, and analyze whether that money is doing the right thing by the people. So I think a few things on, on what you said. You know, this, this notion, and you've used the term in the past, of the budget cushion, which is you know, a term I like and, and we, we, we like to use, and 
I think at multiple press conferences over the last five years, I've, I've even referenced that term in your push for, for a certain percentage window to the mayor and gotten a response of, I get where the controller's coming from, but you know we have record reserves and I think we're doing just fine. So we do put away money and I'm not suggesting in any shape or form that the administration has not been mindful of reserves. But the data point that they're using, which I think this broadcast will appreciate, is the reason we have record reserves is we have a record budget expense. So when you look at 10% of $89 billion, well, that's a lot of money. But that's not how you have to look at it. You have to look at the percentage. It's not big budget, big savings. It's are you saving, what percentage of the budget are you putting away for a rainy day? That's where we disagree. But I have to tell you something. You know, as a kid, I came of age during the fiscal crisis in the 1970s. You know, I remember when when the city was on the edge of bankruptcy. It was a crisis. We put in place budget reform to never get there again. My job as controller is to support good priorities to help deal with issues of inequality, to help homeless families. But at the same time, you need to put away money. $225 million is the equivalent of coming home at night, emptying your coins in a change dish, and thinking you're going to save for college for your kids. That right. is not how we should do things. You may be pleasantly surprised by how those coins stack up, but they're not going to pay for your mortgage at the end of the month. They're not. And when you have two little kids like I do, the change dis- disappears to their own <laughs> right. piggy banks. And, 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 right. and that's the, the and fact that's, of the matter with an $89 billion right. budget. And that's because you don't have a controller watching the money your kids are taking out of the <laughs> change dish. So my call for next year's budget, let's start now. Let's look at how to scrub agencies. Let's put more money aside. And then, because the economy is good, the, the, the bank account is flush, let's continue to invest in NYCHA in a stronger housing policy Let's think about how we can help the most, the neediest people. But then let's measure results. And that's why I've created a watch list. I don't want to see a 24% increase in administrative costs at DOE. I want money to go into the classroom. I don't want to see homeless expenditures have no impact on reducing homelessness. Uh, in the at Department of Corrections, this is something amazing. Population going down, um, but violence is going up. And now we're spending $270,000 a year holding 9,000 inmates um, on Rikers Island. Okay. This is madness. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you've identified there's a one-to-one ratio of inmates to officers, which is just incredible. I mean, I think you really have to ask, what is going on there? We talked about this kind of violent problems and the problems with staffing, mm-hmm. with the facility, kind of correctional justice issues, but there are also these very real budget issues and staffing issues and resources issues at the department. And that's why, and that's why for the first time, uh, we have now started to identify agencies uh, that have to be watched. We need more robust public hearings to these agencies. We need to demand more accountability from our government. And if we're really going to be a progressive government, then we have to ask whether the programs we're putting forth are meeting the needs of struggling New Yorkers, and that's what we're going to try to do. So I'm going to continue to think about ways the controller's office can hold these agencies accountable. We do it with audits. We do this with investigations. but. I also think we have to also step up uh, reviewing and perhaps holding our own public hearings 
to get to the bottom of some of these expenditures, and you know, I'll have more to say on that in the coming months. So that's, that's I mean, it sounds like that's as far as you're going to go on that, but that's actually something I was going to ask you, not knowing that you were thinking about the possibility of holding your own public hearings, but, you know, you have this new watch list. You have three initial agencies on it that you mentioned, uh, or at least, you know, branches of, of government service because homeless services, you know, um, stretches across multiple agencies, but correction. Five or six agencies actually deal with this, which people are not aware of. Right, right, right. So you have correction, education, homeless Mm -hmm. services as your three initial on the watch list, and and you're looking at those closely because you're not seeing the return on investment that that you think should be there. Um, I guess, you know, my question was going to be, on those, on on the savings picture, on the spending questions, where how do how does how do we have an impact how does anybody have an impact on what seems like some misguided budgeting you know is it more that the city council needs to take a firmer you know they're the ones really negotiating the budget with the mayor um it needs to be more of the public needs to understand this and put more pressure on the mayor you know what needs to happen look i give the uh mayor and the council great credit for putting forth and accomplishing um, some real agenda items that we needed to deal with. Again, nothing is more important than funding or laying down a payment for funding for senior housing, investing in housing for the poorest people in the city. I've talked about that for a very long time. Fair fares, that was a great effort by the council, the mayor, and most importantly, the advocates who really laid out how to get this done. So there's a and lot some of really good strong arguments by Maria Dulles and the Citizens Budget Commission. That it could of be course. afforded without a millionaire's tax. Yes. Well, that, that, and, that was, and, that, and that was accomplished because w- these are the priorities that people want. Um, but we have to do more long-range thinking and strategizing about how we create a five-borough economy, how we start investing, doing the complicated work of investing in our communities. We need to come up with a better uh, women and minority-owned business plan in the city. You know, we've been working on this for years. Our procurement policy need to be reformed because at the back end, we're only investing 4.9% in city contracts with women and minority-owned businesses. So I've always said what you really want to do economically in the city is create wealth in communities beyond Manhattan. And the way you create wealth is you invest with MWBEs. You have long-range, you have long-range strategies to deal with job creation in the boroughs, and I think that has to start moving if we're going to have a long-term impact for the city. So and just, just one more on that. You know, you like the investment in senior affordable housing. You like the investment in fair fares. You know, you are someone who wants the city to be spending on priorities and you know, sort of in the same mindset as the last couple of city council speakers and the mayor, but but your main argument that hasn't really been the at the forefront of these other leaders is this sort of PEG program that we really need agencies to rein in their spending, something the mayor hasn't insisted on. I mean, that's sort of the real essence well, that of would it. Be, that's because you're okay with some of this spending oh, no, I'm, I'm okay. Listen, I'm okay with spending for good things. And again, we need to make sure that the money that we are spending really goes to creating a pipeline to the middle class for all people and also to grapple with the people who are struggling. The real challenge in government is to take advantage of what has been a very flush economy. You know, I keep saying that the New York City economy uh, in terms of the recovery since the 2008 recession has really led the nation, Maria knows this. And so we have been at this once 
in a 40-year moment in the city's history where we we are not just, we just don't, not only do we have enough money to meet some of our priorities, but we also have this incredible opportunity to deal with some of the vexing problems that require large expenditures but can really radically transform the city. And I think that when we deal with some of these issues, homelessness is something we're able to grapple with because we can spend close to $3 billion. My critique is just because you spend it doesn't mean you solve the problem. And I think part of the problem is that we operate in a siloed approach to homelessness where we have um, investment in services without in a real, true, affordable housing plan. And we've got to break those silos and think about ways to actually reduce uh, people, and especially children in homeless shelters. You know, we are horrified at Trump and our children uh, basically living in cages. This is something from another era. You look at those pictures, and it breaks your heart. You, you know, some of the toughest people I know have tears in their eyes throughout the whole day watching this unfold. But I've also been in the homeless shelters, Ben, and I've seen how we're treating our children within those shelters and people basically living in the shelters. The shelters, people living in the shelters way too long. We can't get people out. So we have to practice what we preach and we, are, we have to have a zero tolerance for shelters that people are living in that are just outrageous. And what is the plan to really reduce homelessness? Do not even say to me, well, our plan is to reduce homelessness by 2,500 in five years at the cost of $3 billion? You gotta be kidding me. I mean, everybody wake up here. I mean, and, I think you have to ask, <laughs> what are we getting for the $3 billion and how effective is it, and well, where can, is the I, regular review to say, yes, this money is being, I mean, it's been a tremendous cost increase, and it's still a problem that people feel and that is visible but, but, in the city and of concern. Well, let's talk about who's being impacted. Yes, no one wants to see people sleeping on streets, but just put our, you know, a lot of people are one paycheck away from being homeless. So here's what's happening in the city. We're seeing folks priced out of homes because of the impact of gentrification. There's no plan to stem that. There's no real affordable housing plan to meet the needs of the poorest New Yorkers. 30% of people in homeless shelters actually work, yet they can't get an apartment. We don't have a robust plan. We need to challenge this bureaucracy and create a new paradigm in terms of dealing with these critical issues. That is why I have done the audits on homelessness. That's why we did 10 audits of NYCHA to jumpstart this conversation. And we have to keep fighting because we are at a moment where we do have resources. But as I've said in our budget presentation, if we don't act now, we are not gonna be in a strong financial position going forward. The Trump tax cut actually gave us a boost. People prepaid their taxes. We didn't feel the full impact of what's coming from Washington. Uh, maybe Citizen Budget Commission you know, is calculating this as we are. I'm not sure our financial situation is gonna get better in the years ahead, which is why we have to save and why we have to prepare and why we have to hope we take back Congress. I mean, there are things re related to this. Right, I mean, just to 
general comment, I think, before we pivot a little bit, but you know, the, the, there has been pressure to make the affordable housing plan more affordable and deepen the subsidy and bring a greater number of units online. Of course, the tension there is the more you subsidize some units, the less you can produce in the affordable housing plan overall. And I think there's a broader question about how much can we expect government to do to solve this in an area that has traditionally been best um, kind of dealt, you know, the federal government has best dealt in this area. And yet, uh, from what we see, all indications are from the federal government that they, you know, there isn't this willingness to to provide the investment. And of course, that is no more visible than it is in NYCHA. And so, you know, your office has, and yet NYCHA provides most of the city's deeply affordable subsidized housing. Um, so your office has done several audits of NYCHA, and you've recently called for looking at the management and bureaucracy. Um, you know, tell us what you think. I mean, now we will have this federal monitor. We have the city dedicating even more resources um, into NYCHA, thanks to this consent, consent degree that will bring $200 million a year from the city's capital plan to NYCHA. Um, what do you think the opportunities are for change here? Um, and where should there be focus, both in terms of addressing the capital needs and some of the kind of management issues that have produced these difficulties? Just to go back in history a little bit, so NYCHA was created by another mayor, Fiorello LaGuardia, back in 1938, I think, first project built. It was not poor people housing. No. It was the housing for $100 a month. That was your ticket to the middle class. You got into NYCHA, your kids were going to be fine. I remember growing up in Washington Heights, there was no difference between growing up a couple blocks away from Dykeman Houses and playing in Dykeman Houses. In fact, Dykeman Houses, because of the open space, you know, we went from hanging out at PS 152 to just running around Dykeman Houses. And it was the, the place that people knew was opportunity. Because of federal divestment, NYCHA has crumbled before our eyes, but we've also been asleep at the switch. Yeah. I mean, just to, expound, to fill yeah. in the gaps in that history, what happened is the state and the city did build several of these developments. Yes. But when federal money started to come in, most of the federal dollars back construction of That's what right. is now the majority of the NYCHA portfolio, and because the subsidies from the federal government were so good, mm -hmm. the city and state units were then transferred to the federal government, which subsequently, beginning in the 80s and 90s, started to really divest. That's right. And that's, a, that's a absolutely true. But if you also look at our history, uh, the city built NYCHA, and then we built the Mitchell Arm Housing Program uh, in the 50s and 60s, and that carried a whole new generation. Koch dealt with the issue of abandonment by returning properties back to the people, and look what happened there. This housing program is, there's a lot of good to it, but it's too narrow. It's not going to meet the incredible demand we need. So we need a robust new housing plan. I've identified through my audits the vacant property the city owns. I'm fighting with the city based on how many parcels of land could be used for low-income housing to meet the new generation of need. And we need to create a land bank, land trust. We need to think about a new subsidy program. Problem is right now, for-profit developers in a lot of cases are, yes, they're building more density and bigger projects in places uh, in Brooklyn, like East New York, but the reality is the affordable housing that they're proposing, the AMI is not reflected of the population of the community. So the affordability is not affordable in the communities. And we are gentrifying people out of the communities they built. 
that has to change if we're going to continue a tradition of building affordable housing. Is the federal government our friend? No, which is why we have to do everything we can to manage the situation better. That's why I said to uh, all who would listen that we have to change the management structure at NYCHA. It is abysmal. You've got a seven-member board that doesn't know what's up. You've got a chair and then a manager, and depending on the politics within NYCHA's, one has power, the other one doesn't, vice versa. Even in this crisis, you know, we don't have uh, a council, a chief financial officer in NYCHA. These positions are going unfilled. There's no capacity in NYCHA. What would happen if I came here today and you said, by the way, you have seven deputy controllers dealing with the heart and soul of the city. When are you going to fill those positions? It would be mind-boggling to you, right? Sure. And we should be outraged that even with low, um, even without money, the management there is abysmal. I mean, look, City Hall, wake up. Do your part. Make sure that we have a structure in place to deal with that $2 billion and more money that will come. And you got to work with, a, with, with the uh, monitor. But at the end of the day, the monitor doesn't run it. Management runs it. So we need one chair, one person in charge. Also, this is a time to get private industry involved. Let's get the best and the brightest from around the city, from all walks of life, to begin looking at this amazing challenge before NYCHA falls apart. One last thing I'll say. The Barry Park City Authority gives a lot of money to the city. It's a very successful housing plan. I've said for the last few years, let's at least take $400 million, $40 million over 10 years, and apply it to NYCHA. It takes the mayor and the governor and the controller on that board to support an effort like that. Uh, the governor has been very supportive of this proposal. If the three of us agree, that would be the first new revenue stream NYCHA's ever had. And I, I don't, I, I followed this, and I know you've called for that. I know the governor has been supportive. What's the administration's rationale for not going well, along? They have, they, 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 you know, they have a set of priorities, and, and again, they have a housing plan that they're very much committed to, mm -hmm. and I don't take anything away from that. But we also have to put our money uh, and resources where the crisis is. And right mm -hmm. now, uh, we've got to fix the boilers. We cannot have another winter that we've had. I'm looking at new revenue streams. And then you can go to the federal government and the state and say, look, we're doing our thing here. We are, we are creating our own revenue. Again, it's not, it's not the $17 billion we need, but we have to be creative. And this is a creative financing mechanism, I think, that's justified given the crisis. I mean, you're right. They definitely need new revenue. The need is tremendous and growing. Um, some of the things reach crisis point. You know, they have reached a crisis point between the lead, the mold, the elevators, the boiler. I mean, it's it's very bad. Um, let me, let and almost universally at the developments. But there is this issue of, is Anisha effectively using the money? And, you know, there's been tremendous pushback about getting private, as you said, you know, private companies with tons of expertise to be involved in some way. And well, they, the, the me, way it ranges. Say, I didn't say, I don't want to make it clear. Private consultation does not mean privatization. It just means we have so many housing experts, people who've been in non-for-profit housing, people who have worked in the, in the field of affordability. Let's bring them around a table. Let's lock the door and well, say, we're not letting anyone out until we have a five-point management plan for NYCHA. Well, yes, but I think so. On the one hand, 
where they have brought in private managers at Ocean Bay, for example, under a development project, the outcomes have been tremendous. And while tenants were very hesitant at the beginning, they're very satisfied now. I mean, the repairs are getting done quickly. They're being done more cost-effectively than NYCHA ever could have done. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for engaging in the private sector, which has this deep expertise in New York City in a range of ways. Um, the other aspect of this, of course, is that in order to start you to, to really get into how NYCHA do, does things, you have to tackle very tough things like procurement and work rules and get labor to the table and get the tenants to agree. And that is going to, I mean, the I think the emergency monitor has some um, authority to, to get into some of these issues, but I think you won't see substantial changes till some of that happens. Yeah, and I, I just wanted to quickly add two things. One, the the new budget item that you highlighted early about the money for senior affordable housing is also meant to help free up some NYCHA space and and utilize space better where you have <coughs> seniors living in three-bedroom apartments. And, you know, just, again, it's about utilization of resources and, and, and smarter um, use of space and, and all that. And, and that is also about relates to the issue of leveraging private industry to build on vacant space, again, needs to be done in a smart way. I don't know if you have other thoughts on, you know, the sort of infill and the pace of infill, but that seems to be moving along perhaps a little more slowly than it should, given the crisis. Well, look, I think uh, Metro IAF and a lot of stakeholders in Brownsville uh, have put forth a very smart plan about how to build housing for our most vulnerable parents and grandparents. And again, I've, you know, in my years as borough president, where you have to deal with contentious development issues, I actually truly believe that the way to accomplish the big things is to create a community consultative process uh, where you bring the stakeholders in. And not everyone's going to agree on approach, uh, but the only way we're going to deal with the housing crisis, the shelter crisis, what we do at NYCHA is to really commit to the kind of community-based planning that makes everyone in a community a stakeholder. You know, it doesn't mean that you get to veto and you get to play a NIMBY role, but it is so valuable when you put people to seat at seat at the table. You know, I just testified at the Charter Vision Commission about how we can strengthen community boards, not to give them veto power, but to give them more resources. So let's put a urban planning staffer on every community board to deal with these issues and give communities the expertise to make informed decisions. So we did budget. Let's move to another one, which is pensions, right? Um, so that is one of the most important roles that the controller's office plays. Um, and, you know, we should explain to people that the each of the pension funds has a board, but that you were the chief fiduciary officer of the pension system. So a um, couple topics here. You know, one, there was a proposal that you supported and have worked on to kind of unify these boards and streamline the process, um, perhaps with the ultimate goal of having a single board or some more nimble decision-making and accountability process. What's the progress there? Well, we did something uh, during my tenure that has never been done before. We now have one investment meeting where all the five pension boards meet together uh, as one to make uh, these decisions. This has been talked about for many, many years. I give great credit to the trustees from the five funds working with our union trustees. We now have this consolidated board meeting, which means there aren't 55 meetings a year 
basically talking about the same investments and shuffling paper back and forth. So we have been able to free up the Bureau of Asset Management to actually work on long-term investing. It's an incredible reform. But, you know, we didn't stop there. You know, we looked at the back office of the, you know, the back office of the investment side. Uh, we have put in place needed reforms, better risk management, compliance, the list is endless, to create a system that better protects the pension fund and gives us more opportunity to take advantage of the market when it's appropriate and also make sure there's a risk system in place when times are tough. We've hit our actuarial target of 7% now over the life of the last four years of our uh, tenure, um, and we'll see what we do this year, but, um, but it has been a great success, and we did that uh, skillfully working with um, our labor allies. And so, but labor doesn't agree on some things, which namely is um, divestment. So there's calls for, you know, the pension portfolio is huge. It's what, $190 billion? $195 billion. It's the fourth largest in the United States, and it's actually the 14th largest in the world. Yeah, so it, it's, it is astounding. And, you know, so there's all kinds of political pressures on what, what to invest in, what not to invest in. And so you have agreed with the mayor that the portfolio should divest of fossil fuels. And so how do you answer concerns, which I think are real, about are you sacrificing investment returns by taking this decision, which may be political? Um, and isn't that, you know, counter to your duty as the fiduciary to secure the maximum possible return for the funds? So the role of fiduciary is critical and absolute. I mean, think about my role here. I'm the financial advisor for 700,000 New Yorkers. I mean, 350,000 who are former city workers, 350,000 who will be retired someday. So I take that very seriously. We do not move on divestment of anything without doing our due diligence. And the first thing is, would we harm the pension fund? Would we harm our investments? And the answer is, we go through a rigorous process. Yes, did I divest from uh, the prison industrial complex? Yes, after two years of research and analysis, and we were able to do that. Did we uh, divest from our coal holdings? Yes, after years of due diligence. Uh, part of being a fiduciary is also to look at the long-term impact on the fund. Would I be a strong fiduciary if I didn't start looking at fossil fuel investment in the portfolio, given um, stranded assets and a whole host of issues related to um, are these holdings going to be successful going forward? So we are now going through a review process. We've just issued an RF. We've got back uh, um, some results for our uh, request, uh, our RFI proposal. We're going to work with experts from around the world. Uh, look, divestment has always been a tool strategically used by our pension fund. Talk about history. Uh, but when I was like, in my 20s, I remember doing civil disobedience uh, outside Mobile Oil. But even as a kid back then, as I was getting arrested, you know, the New York City retirement system was engaging in a divestment strategy, uh, uh, doing business with South Africa to talk about Mandela. And, I, and a lot of us who were on the front lines as kids remember that role. And so there's a tradition here. So does that, but does that mean that as your process of review that you're trying to 
uh, exact some leverage and if there's changes in the industry that you, you know, is that, I mean, you're trying to get a, a change, you know, in South Africa by, by making that statement, by divesting and by saying you need to change your, you know, political system and your social system um, and we may invest with you again. Uh, is that, I mean, is that what's at play with the fossil fuels or is this we're abandoning? First, be a good fiduciary. That's my job. And I take this very seriously. You know, there are people who have said, you know, we, we have led uh, nationally on this issue as a city controller. We have our boardroom accountability uh, campaign. We have fought and challenged corporations that we do business with on issues of board diversity. Right now, we have these corporate boards that are all male, they're all pale. They do not reflect the diversity of what we need. And by the way, diversity is not just a civil rights issue. It is proven fact that when you have diverse corporate boards, better informed decisions are made. So I have led that fight around the country through our boardroom accountability campaign, um, fighting to have the right to run independent directors. Some people have called me an activist, but I call myself, you know, and I think our office is really the ultimate fiduciary because we constantly ask questions of the companies we invest in. Are you doing a good job? Are you diverse? Are you making smart investment decisions? We've challenged companies from Apple to Exxon about their practices. And that's what my retirees uh, expect of me. Ask the questions. When you are a share owner, Ben, well, you have a right to ask the leadership, how are you doing? And here are our suggestions. And that's a critical role um, for anybody who is the financial advisor for $195 billion in investment. So it is a very activist approach, but your argument is the uh, first thing is that the activism has to has to be met by the numbers. And We've used the, the word fiduciary a lot, yeah. but I consider myself a activist fiduciary. <laughs> I ask, which is we're just coining a new term here. Mm -hmm. uh, but but that's a little long for a business card, maybe. But, yeah. it, well, but but think about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I ask a lot of questions. Right. I hold these folks accountable. Uh, at the end of the day, we hit our actuarial target on the pension fund. We take care of the people who took care of us: our cops, our firefighters, our teachers the people who will get a small pension for a lifetime of service, I gotta protect that pension. Right, there's some pretty clear feedback on how it's going. We, we see that pretty regularly, that you, you get the accountability side because the numbers will, will tell you the story. So another area, uh, and we'll, we'll wrap up in the next few minutes here, is of course audit. So, you know, you've done a lot of audits. A lot of them have been on night, about NYCHA, like we talked about. Um, you know, another area, where you've got some um, authority and enforcement, well, limited enforcement, um, is on the union welfare funds. So mm -hmm. folks don't know what these are. They're kind of, um, you know, they are funds to which the city plays a per-member contribution to each union um, for supplemental health and other benefits. So for the most part, the unions are using these funds to provide optical and dental benefits. A lot of them do prescription drugs. They do a lot of other things. They may provide an annuity, um, scholarships, kind of a whole range of things. Um, and your office does this excellent report, which looks at these 81 funds and says, <laughs> and says, you know, here's what their fiscal health, you know, here's their fiscal condition, um, and identifies the ones that are not, you know, they don't look so great. They've got high reserves or low reserves. They may have deficits. Um, but even more concerning is that periodically all kinds of stories come out about these funds that are, you know, there's scandals associated with them. 
Um, and the, the office doesn't audit them that frequently. So, you know, we have said that, one, they should be audited more frequently, perhaps on a regular schedule, but two, how about getting the controller some more authority to go in there and do some specific benchmarks and, and have some enforcement ability with these funds? So, you know, I, I read with great interest uh, the CBC report, made a number of recommendations, you identified what the potential for some hundred, I think it was $160 mm -hmm. million dollars in savings. Um, we audit those funds, and the goal, or my job, is to create a transparency so that people can ensure that the funds are being managed properly. We have identified where some funds have high expenses, made recommendations. Where we need to have more discussion is the role of the controller in, genera in general, uh, given my charter authority, is to be the auditor, not the regulator. Because if you're the regulator, you can't be the auditor. Mm -hmm. And they have to be separate. And while I'm open to looking at those issues, our general policy has been uh, not to combine that because then we can't audit. Look, during the NYCHA, who was going to be the monitor debate, uh, you know, I was very honored by Governor Cuomo who said, look, if the city council can't get it together, we have great faith that the controller's office could look and appoint a monitor we grappled with this issue of can you appoint the monitor that you're gonna then audit. Our conclusion was that's not a good idea. So that's where I would have uh, a disagreement with the CBC recommendation, but I'm open to continue to have a discussion about how we can continue to do you know that kind of job. Also, where we do find issues, you know, with audit, we can do 70, 80 audits a year, but I also have to, I also have to make sure that we, you know, we're auditing I have to make sure, given our limited resources, that we're auditing. Strategically. Yeah. So Absolutely. we're unfortunately going to have to wrap it up there with the controller. I will say on on that front, uh, there is a, a Charter Revision Commission happening now that you said you testified about community boards, but there'll be another one coming up where you get an appointee, so we'll be interested to see who you appoint and where, you know, where that one heads. That's more of a city council-led one. Uh, coming together soon. Um, you have a variety of other projects, obviously, that uh, you're involved with and reports you put out and recommendations and programs, so folks should obviously um, look at the controller's website and, of course, news reports and, and reports from uh, organizations like CBC to check in on other work you're doing, and we'll, of course, have to have you back to discuss some of that as well. Thank you for being here. Great to finally make it to this <laughs> podcast. Thank you. Bye. Bye.